What have you seen as a correlation between trauma and disease? You know, that, to my mind, is the great question. If I were the head of NIH, I would put all my money in this. One of the greatest challenges with psychedelic research, I've seen it in my own environment of two people who were terminally ill, who stopped being terminally ill after the psychedelic experience. Reports of people who give up their IBS, for people who give up their migraine headaches. If I were a young person beginning to run a laboratory, I'd say, I'm going to see what the core systems are that these agents affect in the core organization of the brain and the body's homeostasis that may reset those things. We're not anywhere close to having a technology for that. Can we make people healthier by giving them a sense of inner safety that actually is based on a core biological safety system? Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it sure should be simple. I have been taking AG1 for a couple of years now. I take it first thing in the morning on an empty stomach, which is how they recommend to take it. It has helped me feel the most healthy that I've ever been. That's because AG1 delivers all of the vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, probiotics that I need for my gut health, which is where I feel like I've had the most improvement. My stomach feels flat, not bloated ever. I can accept any food so much easier. I have more energy every day. My skin looks better. There's a million things that I feel like AG1 has helped with to make me my healthiest self. It's just one scoop mixed in water every day, and it makes me feel the healthiest I've ever been. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 plus K2 and get five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash pretty intense. That's drinkag1.com slash pretty intense. Check it out. I'm such a huge fan. I read your book a couple of years ago. And I just thought it was just the most amazing thing. So that's why that's why I've asked for this time with you. Thank you. Great. <laughs> um, so you said you've had a long, busy day. I'm, I'm curious, what kind of things are you working on right now? Well, I had a lengthy podcast about our psychedelic studies. And I saw a bunch of my patients. And I'm finishing a book called Come to your senses about working with your body after trauma. So you still see patients? Yeah, yeah. The moment you stop seeing patients, you start getting married to your ideology. Ah. You stop really facing reality in some ways, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that like a passion? Would you say that it's to keep connected? But you stop doing it and you start believing that your own thoughts are always true. But as long as you see complicated human beings, you see that different people need different things, keeps your mind open. Like There's a tendency in the mental health field for people to get ideological and religious. Right. And people say, oh, Freud, and that treatment, and that treatment. And people get very passionate about a teacher and a modality. And uh, the real issue is, what can you do for this particular person? And so the ideology falls short. And if you stop seeing people, you go with your ideology rather than with the needs of the people you see. Yeah. Uh, uh, in my training, uh, my big teacher said, you have only one teacher, and that's your only one textbook, and that's your patients. 
Wow, that's good advice. That's very good advice, yeah. yeah. Have there been any fascinating patients that have come through with very complex, all of them? All the time, yeah, all the time, yeah. Why is it so complicated? Why? we are complicated creatures. <laughs> people keep wanting to have simple answers and simple solutions. Um, um, I see people gravitate to simple solutions all the time. And we are very complex creatures. And uh, we need to have multiple perspectives to do things well, yeah. This is an area of fascination for me, psychology, the body, treatments. Um, I've done some of the ones that you talk about and, in fact, dove much deeper into one of them based on reading your book and really fell in love with EMDR. Which one? EMDR. EMDR. I've also done psychedelics as well. And and somatic healing with um, sound and body movement and energy work and and really tried to to tap into all the different areas. But yeah. I found EMDR to be just, I, I can't tell you how many people I've recommended it to and as well as referenced your book for how strong of an opinion you have about it being a well, being a really good modality. So could you please explain it? Because I so, have never been very good at explaining it. The EMDR was really my first teacher. Mm. In, the, every, in our culture, uh, we think that two things are normal, one of which is yakking. Uh, nobody ever says you should not talk or you should not have a relationship. Uh, no, that's sort of a given. Um, and the other thing is uh, there's a tradition in Western world, if you feel bad, you take a swig. And it's always those alcohol, sometimes a little dope, uh, but that's part of our culture. So it's perfectly normal to say to people, take this drug. Um, that's acceptable. And then first time I go to China, I, I think I'm pretty miserable, and I see 10,000 Chinese making these weird Qigong movements. And I go into the park and I go, wow, this is such a miserable place. People need to do these movements in order to feel better. So I saw that another culture had a different way of doing things. But I used to, when I started to do yoga here and, and study yoga, people said, oh, God, he has gone off the deep end because it didn't fit in with our cultural prejudices. Right. And then I was involved in the Truth Commission in South Africa, and I see people dance and sing together. If you start singing and dancing together at the hospital, people think you, you've gone crazy. Yeah. In other cultures, that's perfectly normal. Huh? And so you get to see the different cultures have different solutions. And the first time I get exposed to EMDR, I think, that is crazy. And we at Harvard, and my colleagues start wiggling their fingers in front of people's faces and I say stop this shit immediately we're trying to be respectable people don't do this stupid stuff and then um, embarrassing the, no, embarrassing like we will be kicked out if we continue to do crazy stuff and that's what you do when you can do unusual things and so um, then I saw some people really getting remarkably better and so I did the first and only and I made funded study on EMDR. And we had fantastic results, and it never really got integrated and respected as a mainstream treatment, despite the fact that 
at least 60, 100,000 clinicians are practicing around the world. Uh, and the, the important medical centers still, that's crazy. Huh? And so what I learned from EMDR is sometimes that's crazy things work. Things that don't fit with your cultural prejudices. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was a liberating thing for me to see that something that on the surface seemed absolutely bizarre had such great results. And that didn't have to do with understanding, insight, or changing people's chemistry. Yeah. And this that really opened my mind of, wow, what else is there? And how do we get to be, how do we deal with all this stuff? Because it's not cognitive. And it's to some degree biological, but not only biological. Um, and so uh, EMDR is a great treatment to help to make particularly memories of the past, memories of the past. Can you explain the mechanism, how it works? Well, I can. You won't understand the word of it. We did a piece of research after many years, and what we saw is that uh, there is an increased activity, connectivity between the left insula and the right temporal parietal junction, uh, which is a way brain circuitry gets activated that helps people to realize that this belongs to the past and not to the present and sits in my body. Hmm. But it's really, it really rewires uh, core neurological circuits in the brain. Hmm. I looked at it like time travel. That's actually how it felt to me, almost as if I was able to go back in time and revisit the experience with my maturity, with an observer perspective of the event, see it from the other person's perspective, sometimes the other person's family even. And sometimes, like one time I even had what felt like the like angels like and I was able to watch some sort of orchestration of something I needed to experience. So I did I did it many times. More what you see in psychedelics than EMDR, but hey, EMDR gave you a great gift. That's great. <laughs> I promise I didn't pair the two together. I've done them, but I didn't pair them. I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on that and I uh on as far as time travel goes and 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 what that makes you think of when I say that and and, oh. and how we define time travel and how we think it's our biological body, but it sure yeah. feels like if 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 we're not our body and we are, let's say, our consciousness, how is that not time travel? It's interesting how the word time travel comes up a lot when people talk about really having been healed from trauma. Yeah, I hear it at least once a week from Oh wow. Okay. And it would not be a word that I would naturally use. You know, I live in a, I have still a solid leg in mainstream circles. So when I start talking in serious academic environments about time travel, they go, he really has gone off the deep end. (laughs) Uh, But it comes up all the time because indeed, uh, hypnosis, EMDR, IFS, internal family system therapy, mm-hmm. uh, all allow you to revisit the past and to come to terms with something that happened a long time ago and to really revisit yourself back then, but with the consciousness that you have right now. And so, and in, in all of these methods, on some level, you get to see what happened to that person back then that they couldn't cope with it. And so they were overwhelmed by it. They did the best they did, could, 
And now you bring your current resources into that creature back then, who you once were. Yeah. No, but I'm really sort of hesitant to say that because that sounds pretty woo-woo, doesn't it? <laughs> You've done psychedelics, though, correct? Oh, I'm very seriously into psychedelics right now. Yeah. Right. Talk to me about that. Well, this past week, our big article came out uh, called The Effect of MDMA on Self-Experience and PTSD. And um, I've been part of this very large map study on MDMA and PTSD. And uh, just put together by Vic Doblin, primarily mm -hmm. Michael Mithoffer, who are real heroes here mm -hmm. against enormous obstacles. And so I've been one of the 15 sites. And uh, we saw remarkable results with MDMA, actually larger than just about anything we have seen. Really? My MDR research was pretty close to what the MDMA research was also. Uh, but I was in charge of the so-called secondary data. And the secondary data were the really important data, namely that what we saw is that MDMA quite uniquely can help people to rearrange their relationship to themselves and to feel compassion for themselves, to find words for themselves, mm. to find understanding of themselves, mm -hmm. and to soothe themselves. And because they gained that capacity to get perspective on themselves, they got better from their PTSD. So the big finding out there in PTSD land is, is a great treatment for PTSD. There's some other great, great treatments for PTSD. What there is not a great treatment for is for the residues that very early life trauma leads, leaves inside of you. If you get mistreated as a small child, you live with a legacy of damage, shame, self-hatred, self-loathing is the word I like to use here, mm -hmm. of feeling that this has happened to me because I was fundamentally a defective person. Mm -hmm. And that's the legacy of early childhood trauma that people carry with themselves for the rest of their lives. And clinicians, all my colleagues who I love and respect, have always been trying to work on that issue of how do we help people to feel like they are good people and it wasn't their fault that it happened to it. And somehow it is incredibly hard to get it implanted in people, even with EMDR. And on MDMA, people got compassion for themselves and were capable of tolerating who they were, were and feeling this happened to a very vulnerable little kid. And if I'd been there, at that time, knowing what I know now, I would have done all kinds of things, but it really rearranged people's relationship to themselves. That, to my mind, is the great message of psychedelics. It changes your relationship to your internal self. And some people say they have past lives experiences and we experienced their birth. I'm not ready to go there, right. uh, but some people who I certainly respect and admire talk about those things yeah yeah are um have you reached research psilocybin ayahuasca and some of the other psychedelics as well uh, the, the the mdma study cost 64 62 million dollars so as somebody gives us another 62 million dollars <laughs> we'll replicate that study in other ages it's not what something 
you just do it. You know, right, right. There are a lot of people years. studying these things, but the sixty-two million. Uh, I'm not so sure. The, the, really? Some, no, there's a lot of review articles. The real huh? work of putting a study together is unbelievably expensive and complicated. Can you explain uh, what makes the real research like what what qualifies well, it, what builds it, a real research project and what it, makes it so expensive? So, for real research, you need to have a control group. So okay. half the people get the real stuff and other people get something else. Okay. And so you need to have a team that can provide the other treatments. And they need to train people to have the, the core treatment. Then you need to videotape that. You need to make sure do the people do the right thing. And then you need to hire a team of people who have no idea what treatments have been get, people have been getting in order to evaluate what's going on. Because okay. you are supposed to be blind. Right. Because your prejudice towards, let's say, MDMA or EMDR, how you tend to sort of be judgmental in one direction or another. And you need to hire a team of statisticians, and you need to pay all kinds of people along the way. And sometimes you have to sue some people along the way, permission mm -hmm. uh, to do things. And so, uh, but and then you have a team of administrative people and and it's it's very complex lots of layers what about um as far as sort of the legality of it on a federal level to be able to actually proceed with these studies from the outside looking in it seems as though um a lot of these drugs or medicines whatever you want to call it have been very restricted not very restricted. they're illegal right they're, <laughs> like it's not restricted like no it was the people who did this research were branded as as criminals. <laughs> and Is that how you see them too? <laughs> no, no, no. That's not. No, that's the fact of our society. Right. Exactly. Tens of thousand people were put in jail for using these substances. Okay? Right. It's not like a little bit inconvenient. No. <laughs> this is as a as a researcher, and that's why people like Warren Griffith, who just died. And his colleagues at, at Hopkins are such admirable people because they kept doing the research despite the fact mm. that they had overwhelming opposition. For mm. example, at one point in my life, I had Timothy Leary's office at Harvard. And I was next to my office, next to Lester Grinspoon, who was once a, a big name in the psychedelic field. And so the people I knew were very interested in psychedelics and knew something about it. None of us dare to study it. And we studied Prozac instead because mm. you would get kicked out of academia and you would lose your respect of your colleagues. And so that's why I think Big Dublin in particular and Michael Mithofer and some other people are such extraordinary people because they, they sued the FDA to do the stuff that they did. They fought their way through this maze. I've been recently connected with Rick Doblin, and I'm excited to talk to him at some point in time because he's been obviously super instrumental in, in a lot of this. If you were to put, um, if you were to put a the next, the next illegal drug or or medication medicine on the uh, list for research, which one would you be the most interested? Oh, well, I think they're all interested, interesting. And what is really interesting to me is that. I still consider myself a relative newcomer uh, to this field, even though 
I took LSD for the first time in 1964, um, I, we don't know what the different effects of the different drugs are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have different effects, but nobody has been able to articulate them yet. And so there's been research of ibogaine for addictions. Mm-hmm. There's been no research on MDMA for addictions or psilocybin. Mm-hmm. So right now, if we says, ibogaine is the best for addictions. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. At Hopkins, they have been studying psilocybin for depression and for end-of-life issues. So that's what it's targeted to. But is that the only thing that does that? Huh? We studied MDMA for PTSD, and now people say MDMA is the drug of choice for PTSD. I'm not sure if that's true at all. Maybe uh, psilocybin may be as good or better. Mm-hmm. Uh, 5-MAO. DMT. DMT is a very powerful substance, very intriguing substance. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it does some things that the other things don't do. Right now, it's still all word of mouth, um, who you happen to know and where you spend your weekends. But it's an underground culture still, by and large. You know? Yeah. I find um, the plant medicine world to be so effective because instead of reading something and 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 thinking it Mm. you can even kind of know it even like you're aware you know it but when you go into those experiences it's such a full body visceral experience that again almost like emdr you are actually living it completely from head to toe inside out and so you can't unknow that it becomes part of your being So it's extremely influential in the healing. It's in a way an ineffable experience. Exactly. I can give you a neuroscience explanation of what EMDR does, and you'll be impressed with it because you don't understand what I'm saying. Um, (laughs) um, But it doesn't really explain it. And you can say the memory becomes something belonging to the past, and it doesn't quite capture it either. None of our language completely captures what these substances do for people. Um, Makes me very much question what the nature of this reality really is. But, you know, that is a real question, of course. And that's a question that um, actually, you know, it's it's interesting because, as you can see, I'm, I'm not a young kid anymore. And so I grew up in a world where everything was explained with Freudian type notions. Okay. And in terms of mental processes, and I learned Piaget about how children develop minds and stuff like that. That learning about how people develop, their mental capacities develop, has almost gone completely off the wayside. That culture has disappeared. The mind has disappeared from psychiatry. Mental health got rebranded behavioral health. In other words, you go to a doctor not to be a pain in the ass to other people, but it's not about your mind or your soul or your being. And that whole core issue that used to be central to our field with William James and Pierre Janet and a lot of people like that and Freud uh, uh, has, has disappeared. And I think the psychedelics hopefully will bring back an interest in mental processes. But uh, right now, there is very, are very few ways of measuring these things and almost no way of communicating about it. So we need to 
really we we discover the mind right uh, and the human mind actually which has and hopefully psychiatry will regain its soul and not become an extension of the drug companies anymore exactly exactly which is why you know the curious question about from a legal standpoint or federal level of why has the, some of this stuff been held back and you know, I get a little bit into the conspiracy of its ability to heal people, which is yeah, yeah. what people might want. Yeah, and these are legitimate concerns. And I see it happening right now in psychedelics again. There's clearly a lot of people are really realizing there's money in them, there are hills. And now a lot of people just rushing in to make money. And I'm not very optimistic about how that will work out. Yeah. From a ethics standpoint of of, yeah. of being a practitioner for these medicines and people, how it people goes, people take shortcuts, and like what you see already in the ketamine clinics that people are putting in a little cubicle. Right. Um, these substances bring up a lot of stuff in people's minds, a lot of oftentimes very painful memories, upsetting issues. Right. And if it's not done in a therapeutic context, I think we may see some very nasty side effects yeah. yeah yeah i mean i would agree with that i've i've also done ketamine too and um one time i i had a nasal spray that was just uh, was, uh ketamine and oxytocin and i would get very bored when i go in my hyperbaric chamber so i would do that and do very little and relax and i did just a tiny bit more and it lasted like three times longer and i thought i would get stuck there and, yeah. and, 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 and this is, and I would consider myself to be a pretty responsible person, yeah. but, yeah. but that is an example of, you know, um, how things can go a little sideways. And, yeah, and that's, that's actually relatively minor, you know, right and, uh, for example, first I had to take MDMA for in my role, principal investigator, and people had always um, asked me, so that's uh, you've seen so many horrible traumas. How has it affected you? And mm. I'd say, you know, if you have a good marriage and some friends and mm. good coffee, it's not a big deal. When I had my first MDMA experience, all my traumatized people came to visit me for eight hours. Wow. And I lied there for eight hours going, oh, shit. Oh, <gasps> I really felt nothing but the pain I've been carrying of other people. Oh. And I thank God I was there with Michael Mithoffer and Annie and my wife who helped me as I was feeling all the pain that I'd absorbed over the years. If I'd be by myself, I'm not sure if I'd been able to live with that. You know, I think this is not an atypical experience. We see this right. all the time in our MDMA study that people come up with really horrendous memories and, and deep pain and that's an important thing for them to get in touch with. But boy, they better have some really good support about themselves because mm -hmm. otherwise it may be overwhelming, you know? Yeah. There was a fascinating story by Gabor Mate. Have you met him? Yeah. I sure know. Yeah. 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 And about him going to, with a group to do, I think it was ayahuasca or at least in that realm and and the the they told him look you have too much negative energy and they took him off and made him do four <laughs> days of ceremony on his own to clear how much he had absorbed from every anyone but it's yeah. Yeah. this enters into like a fascinating dynamic of being human which feels like you can't see yourself 
it's so hard to see yourself objectively and that we need other people to bounce things off of, or at least gateways into other, other ways of thinking through these medicines or through um, EMDR and other processes. So that to me feels like the hardest part is getting growing up as a kid, you, you grow up and you don't know you have certain programming. You don't know you've had traumas that then turn into the way that you react and act in the world. So why is it that we can't see ourselves very clearly or maybe even at all? It's actually surprising to the degree to which we do know ourselves because that's not what we have brains for. We have hmm. brains to know each other. <laughs> And so that's what you see when you raise a kid. I don't know if you have kids, but kids are completely antisocial creatures when they come up. <laughs> and then they slowly get cultivated to wake up at the same time as other people, to go to school and to put on their socks and to eat at the same time as other people. And the brain is basically a social brain. Mm. Um, when you work in places like um, many places in Africa, uh, India, Yemen, uh, and you work with traumatized people there, and you ask them what happened to you, they cannot talk about themselves. They can say, my village, my people, my tribe. And people cannot differentiate themselves from the people around them. And that is, I think, basically how we were, how we evolved as human beings. We we're primates who live in troops, and we did not evolve as individuals. And it's sort of a side effect of American culture that we actually see that we're unique people who are independent of our environment. Language is really for me to explain to you what you and I need to do. Language is not to explain me to you. And and so in many parts of the world, uh, psychotherapy, like in, in Japan, for example, or um, in China, psychotherapy is not doesn't quite fit within the culture all that much. Mm -hmm. uh, because the culture there is very much that you need to be fit into the larger context of society. You need to learn to honor your betters mm -hmm. and to fit in, that's sort of the main culture. And so uh, America is quite different in that regard. That you need to, I hear people ask 14 year olds, what is your goal in life? Mm -hmm. 14 years old, you don't know what your goal in life is. You know, like, <laughs> You just need to go to school and get good grades. Uh, to get a candy bar for lunch? Like, <laughs> to play soccer later? Yeah, that's right. Like, uh, so language is basically not about self-experience. Um, as you certainly discover in the psychedelic world, the psychedelic experiences that you have are very difficult to describe in a way. Uh, uh, they're much larger than we are and they help you to change your perceptions. But, uh, you know, it's fascinating to see what people say say about it, but it never quite captures the essence because uh, it's not linguistic. Yeah, yeah. Does everyone have trauma? No, no. I think some people have quite good life. Everybody has heartache. Mm -hmm. Everybody has gut-wrenching experiences. Uh, all lives are difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though on the surface they may look nice. We all have pain. But trauma, in terms of being really messed with by the people you count on, being assaulted, threatened for you to life, 
is not universal. But it's interesting when PTSD started to be studied, what were the countries that were the leading countries in studying trauma? Australia, Norway, and the Netherlands. They happen to be three of the most civilized countries in the world because in those countries, it was no longer normative to be traumatized. Oh. Uh, in so they're like, they're standing out more because they're very uh, civilized countries. But, you know, in India, you know, there's so much misery that right. you don't say, oh, this person is miserable, but 10% of us are not miserable. <laughs> right. And so, and what you saw in China uh, after the Cultural Revolution, like massive trauma, they wouldn't talk about trauma because everybody had too much of it. So it's only once... And what's interesting to me, actually, is that most people don't... So I was on a podcast with a very smart person uh, not too long ago, and she said, Dr. Van der Kolk, why do you think there's so much more trauma today than before? And I went like, did you take any history classes? Like, do you know anything about history? <laughs> Our lives basically today are vastly more secure than they have ever been before. Mm. I just read a book about pandemics throughout history. I mean, people got wiped out all the time. Massively. And the plague, and all these diseases. And now people think the, the, the COVID is a big deal. Compared to the people used to go through, the COVID is a very minor deal, actually. Mm, <laughs> mm, so mm -hmm. It's only once uh, our civilization managed to make a lot of people feel relatively secure and life predictable that we could think what happens when that doesn't happen. Interesting. That's where huh. the trauma comes Would from. you say that's a universal belief that there is more trauma than ever? Is she oh. representing the collective as well? That is no, that's completely misunderstanding what's going on. That's right. really not knowing anything about history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We got to see the massive numbers of people got wiped out all the time by disease and and poverty and hunger and uh, wars. Um, I mean, that's I mean, one thing that has always intrigued me. Did any culture figure it out? And mm. then I read books about what pre-Columbian America was looked like: the Incas, the Aztecs, the Mayas. They were messed up, man. They did terrible things to each other. People have always done terrible things to each other throughout history. I don't think it's... I had a dialogue with the Dalai Lama and having a bit of a provocative nature, I asked him, so your holiness, I don't really like calling people your holiness, but I did. Uh, what do you make of the fact that the three worst genocides in the last 50 years have been in Buddhist countries? How'd that go? <laughs> He's answered me in Tibetan, so I don't quite know what he said. I question whether what is inherent to this reality that we live in. And I wonder if some level of that trauma or the sadness or, you know, this negative feeling is just kind of part of the dualistic reality that we live in light and dark, good and bad, happy, sad. Yeah. And people have always thought that way. And people have always thought tribally. It's one of our curses and the amount of benefits that you think in terms of clusters. And if you belong to my little cluster, then you and I will stick together and we'll kill anybody who doesn't belong to our cluster. Mm -hmm. 
and that's part of basic training in the military. You they put you under extreme stress, where you're scared to death going through basic training, and by having comrades about you, you get very attached to the people who are going through the same stress. And now you're willing to kill other people for the sake of your comrades who you have got such great hardship with. If you didn't have that hard basic training, people would stop killing each other because you'd say, why should I kill you? <laughs> We're like a virus. We're like multiple viruses seeing who's going to win. Yeah, and people have always, always done it everywhere, every culture. I went to the Buddhist monastery in India every year. They came back two years ago. He said, "You know what they did in my in the monastery? They built a wall right through the middle of the monastery for the monks who are adherents of the Dalai Lama and the monks who hate the Dalai Lama." <laughs> um, something that affects everyone to some degree, some large, some smaller, but uh, is sickness, disease. In your research and experience, what have you seen as a correlation between trauma and disease? You know, that, to my mind, is the great question. I, you know, I like to say from time to time, if I were the head of NIH, I would have put all my money in this. Mm -hmm. And with that to me is one of the greatest challenges with psychedelic research is that I've seen it in my own environment of uh, two people who were terminally ill who stopped being terminally ill after the psychedelic experience. Mm. There's a lot of anecdotal reports of people who give up their IBS, for people who give up their um, migraine headaches. And if I were a young person running, beginning to run a laboratory, I'd say, I'm going to see what the core systems are that these agents affect in the core organization of the brain and the body's homeostasis that may reset those things. We're not anywhere close to uh, having a technology for that, but that's the great challenge. Can we make people healthier by giving them a sense of inner safety and that actually is based on a core biological safety system. Hmm. What about the uh, the idea of energy being stuck in the body and sort of stagnant, stuck energy? And I think, did you say your book that you're writing has to do with sound or movement? Well, come to your senses. Come to your senses. And bodies. Um, um, see, so uh, I have some good friends who are not ashamed to use the word energy therapy. Uh, David Feinstein in particular, who I love and admire. Uh, in my world, talking about energies would not be an acceptable way of phrasing right. things. Right. But that's all we are, isn't it? Well, you can go there, but then you can you can rearrange it in different ways. Yep, yep, yep. It's all a vocabulary issue in a way. But and there's better ways, better words than energy. <laughs> no, no, there's more more specific. In art culturally, it's not acceptable to talk in those terms. Mm -hmm. mm. So mm. a different language to communicate. Mm. How would you communicate it? I would communicate about uh, uh, immune processes in the body and the viral processes in the body. 
things that you can measure that are fairly concrete. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If someone were to want to get on a path of healing, given that you've researched so many different modalities and have worked with so many patients um, yeah. and still do, what's the path for them? What's their first few steps? I think the first step is indeed to find language, to communicate what happens. So the first step is to find somebody with whom you can talk about your internal experience and, and begin to create some internal order out of the chaos that you're feeling. Right? Um, these things always start off with, uh, I get scared, I get angry. And then you usually blame it. And other people say, you make me angry. You make me scared. So you try to try anybody else. And at some point, you become to realize that it is something about me that reacts in a particular way. And I think the first step is to find get language for yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, to to really be have somebody who helps you to be honest with yourself, which is very hard to do. Yeah. Uh, it's much easier to talk about how awful that other person is than how than your own shortcomings. Huh? Mm -hmm. uh, so having a gentle guide who really helps you to be honest and helps you to find language for your bodily reactions, for your internal experience, is the first step. Mm -hmm. And then the next step is um, a very, very important part of the whole step is uh, learning to tolerate the messages from your body and learning to tolerate the feelings that you have. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one of the better pieces of research I've done uh, was on yoga and how profoundly helpful yoga was for traumatized people to have, of course, you always measure PTSD, but in really yoga, if you're dedicated to it, you get to practice, gives you a feeling of ownership of your body in a way. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good beginning step. Uh, owning yourself, having language for yourself, understanding yourself. And then you look at what gets stuck. Uh, so uh, certain images keep you stuck, or certain sounds or sensations. You go, maybe EMDR is the right thing. Or maybe you have a hard time. You always feel scared. You always feel unable to concentrate, then maybe neurofeedback may be the best thing. That really was what my book was about, is I could not give people a prescription of what's best. And when people ask me, what should I do? I always say, uh, what did you underline in my book that appealed to you? And for example, one of my favorite treatments that I love practicing is psychodrama, where you get to have experiences between you and other people that are novel, uh, but I would only do that if in the chapter in the book about psychodrama really appeal to you. Mm -hmm. and, and the body keeps score. I don't have a psychedelic chapter. Uh, I just right. have a little sentence, paragraph about psychedelics, like this is cool, uh, we need to know more about it. Now we have major chapter in in the new book about psychedelics. But again, it has more questions than answers. But it happens, right? You open another door and yeah. you know, I 
I right. was interviewing Neil deGrasse Tyson many years ago, and he said, basically, you know, you, you once you ask one more question, it sort of pushes the bubble out. You learn something, it pushes this bubble out of knowledge, awareness, questions. Right. It just gets bigger, and you have more of everything. Like, you're just yeah. expanding, and there's just more questions. I will say, be distrustful of anybody who says they have the answer. <laughs> For sure. It's always, now I know a little bit. But I always say, you know, 40 years ago when I started this, we knew nothing. Now we know a little bit. And I like to say, 40 years from now, I hope people are laughing at what we're saying today because we have to learn so much more. Evolving knowledge, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, if there was a question that you'd want answered in your professional life, what is that question that you seek the most? Well, I think a very important question is, how can you get people to be curious about themselves mm. and about their own reactions? Uh, how we do we cultivate an introspective culture where we really feel ourselves as the core things we need to work on is how I relate to my environment, basically. And of course, our, uh, our world is culture is very much not like that. You go to do that, you go to get that degree, you go to do that, mm -hmm. and it's not about but uh, one of the things that I say quite seriously in the hope that it will have some impact is that I think every school should teach kids the four R's, reading, writing, arithmetic, and self-regulation, mm. awareness. Every week from K to 12, you have classes in how you calm yourself down, how does it work, what are your feelings, how do your feelings work, what happens in your brain, and you have practice of what it's like to play basketball. What does that do to your body? What it's like to sing together? What is it like to move together? What's it like to do that? And to really get a very deep knowledge about this creature who you are. Uh, right now, schools focus on what's out there. Right. Very important. People should learn that. But people, hopefully, people also, also will learn about themselves. Uh, uh, and of course, what we see in our culture is, is our, as our culture is moving towards that, there's strong opposition and we go to ban books that get in, us in touch with ourselves. Yeah, interesting. It's a little bit yeah. of a, a, little bit, a little bit more conspiracy there. No, but, but that's, that's the course of human history. And every time people get more enlightened, there's people who start burning people. Hmm. Surviving people, you know, hmm. that's what humans are. Like, yeah. Survival. Some other virus is not going to survive if you wake up and start to recognize your true power or what makes you unwell. Yeah. And, and so what, what I'm impressed with is that in the world I live in, uh, people are very much exploring things for themselves. But when I go to a doctor's office, I'm always impressed how the people around me are all waiting for the doctor to tell them what to do. Huh? How little authority most people have about themselves. Mm -hmm. How little knowledge people have. And how little curiosity oftentimes people have about themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'll ask one more question just because we're talking about reflection, a little bit about the brain. Is there a strong role of the pineal gland in, in self-awareness? And I can't say that. Aristotle thought that the pineal gland was the seat of the soul. Right, and exactly. He learned later that 
the pineal gland calcifies in most people by age 40. Right. So the pineal gland doesn't show up much in my literature searches. Hmm. Aristotle is with you. It's the seed of the soul. Right. He lived a while ago. <laughs> so is there any value in decalcifying the pineal gland so that there is I wouldn't go access there. to its function? No, I think that would be a leap. I, mean, I would not fund that study, no. no. <laughs> so I should not use my fluoride-free toothpaste anymore and worry about that? If that if you think that's good for you, you should definitely use it. <laughs> I should not I should not pass a law that you're not allowed to use your, your toothpaste, actually. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your time. I don't wanna I don't wanna overstay yeah. my welcome, but okay. uh, I was just super very, very impressed with this book and um thank you for yeah. writing it and all the hard work and good work you're doing. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Good Dr. luck to all. Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.